0: Do you recall what the angelic host proclaimed to the shepherds in the field? They said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men upon whom his favor rests. With the arrival of Jesus, it's the arrival of peace. But there would be some who would disagree with that statement. Not too many years ago, the Society of International Law in London, England, examined the last 4,000 years of human history. And over those 4,000 years, there have only been 286 of those years where there was peace on earth. The other 3,714 years have been racketed by more than 14,000 wars, some large, others small. Over that same time period, there have been more than 3.6 billion people killed in battle. It's not that humans don't want peace, at least in theory. For over that same time frame, there have been more than 8,000 treaties made. 8,000 treaties made and 8,000 treaties broken. This morning, I want to tell you up front That peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of God. You show me a person or a place where the presence of God is invited to dwell, I'll show you a person and a place of peace. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of God. Remember what the angels said. They said, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men upon whom his favor rests. It's not peace to all men. It's peace to men upon whom God's favor rests. So this morning I want to introduce you to a man. A man who knew the favored presence of God Almighty. He was a man of peace. I invite you to draw your sword, turn to Luke chapter 1. I want to read verse 67 to 80 in your hearing. Today we continue our four-part sermon series entitled Advent, for we understand that Jesus is our peace this morning. Uh, Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 1, I want to begin reading at verse 67 and end in verse 80. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's come and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through the holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of the enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew, became strong in spirit. He lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. This morning, I want to speak to you on the path to peace. The path to peace. Before we jump into our text, if you'll give me a few moments, I want to paint the backdrop for you. I want to set the stage of our scripture passage. The people of God had been longing for the God of the people to speak again. There had been sovereign silence for 400 years. It had been four centuries since the last prophet of God had spoken. The last prophet was a man by the name of Malachi. But for four centuries, God had not spoken through his prophets. The people were waiting for a fresh word from God, but God said nothing. The people were waiting for God to do something, but appeared that God did nothing. They were waiting for God to send the long-awaited Messiah, but it appeared as if it would be a whole lot longer until the Messiah would come. The people of God were waiting for the God of the people to do something. In that moment of waiting, God's people of the first century, they prayed, They served, they worshiped. That's pretty good advice for you and for me. For whenever you have a spiritual dry spell in your life, the best thing you can do is continue to pray and serve and worship. Do you know what it is to have a dry season of life? Do you know what it is to ask for God to give you a fresh word, only for God to appear to say nothing? Do you know what it is to ask for healing and for the cancer to linger? Do you know what it is to ask for God to move, but unemployment still stares you in the face? Do you know what it is to want reconciliation and still have brokenness? Do you know what it is to long for God to do something fresh in your life, only to have a parched soul? Do you know what it is to be in a dry season of your spiritual life if you do my friend then I promise you that your dry season is not as long as the people of the first century they've been waiting 400 years you ain't been alive that long I know that your dry season may feel like 400 years but what do you do when the dry times come You ask for God to move and to speak, and God fails to move and doesn't say a word. The people of the first century, they would tell you just keep on praying. Keep on serving. Keep on worshiping. This is the ministry context of the man named Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest in those days. There were 18,000 Jewish priests divided in 24 divisions. Every division of the priest were assigned a weekly task. They would go to the temple for once a week, twice a year. And during that week, the 750 priests that were assigned to their division would go and they would do all the scope of the work of the temple. Now, we are told of Zechariah that he and his wife Elizabeth were upright and blameless. To say they were upright is to say they were morally pure. To say they were blameless is to say they were religiously righteous. They knew the right sacrifices to offer in order to be in right standing with God according to the Old Testament law and the word of the prophets. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they had a good marriage. Zechariah had a great job. He was one of the 18,000 priests. I'm sure they lived in a fine home, and they probably drove a very suitable chariot. They had just about everything life had to offer, but there was one thing that eluded them. They did not have a child. Oh, they wanted to be a mom and dad, but the Bible says that Elizabeth was barren. They tried, they prayed, they tried, they prayed, and each month, Their hopes were dashed in disappointment. Maybe there's someone listening to my voice who knows the heartbreak of infertility. It would seem that all your married couple friends, they're having babies. Why not you? Why does it seem that this one thing that you desperately want eludes you and your spouse? Maybe you know the difficulty of Zechariah and Elizabeth, but they continued to serve and pray and worship the Lord. We are told that on one given assignment, uh, Zechariah went to the temple, as was his responsibility. And on one given day, in one particular week, during one particular assignment of his division to the work of the temple complex, Zechariah's number came up. He was given a holy task. He was told to go into the temple, into that holy place, and burn incense during the evening prayers and sacrifice. That as the people waited outside the temple and as they prayed unto the Lord, there would be a priest designated, in this case, Zechariah. Zechariah would go in. He would burn the incense unto the Lord. Now, that may not sound like a big deal to you, but according to Daryl Bach, In his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, he says that this would have been a ministry milestone for Zechariah. This may have been the highlight of his priestly ministry. You do the math, you realize this doesn't happen frequently. It doesn't happen often. And so his number came up. The day came for him to go in and burn the incense. And I can well imagine that as he walked through the day, through his mind, he rehearsed a hundred times how it was going to go. He re-familiarized himself by his uh, mental uh, eyesight as he looked into that holy place. He familiarized himself and reminded himself of the altar of incense and the table and the showbread and the lampstand. He knew where everything was supposed to be because he was a good student and he had studied well. The time came for evening sacrifice. It came for him to enter the holy temple and to uh, burn the incense. He went in. He did his task. And all of a sudden... There was an angel that appeared. An angel appeared on the right side of the altar. Now, this shock startled Zechariah. He thought to himself quickly, Now, as I've studied my books, there is no priestly textbook that has told me that there was gonna be an angel standing. And this angel was standing on the right side of the altar, the right side, the side of favor, the right side, right between the altar and the lampstand, so that Zechariah could get a good glimpse of this angel. Not only did the angel appear, but the angel spoke. The angel said to Zechariah, God has heard your prayer. He's heard the prayer of you and your wife Elizabeth. And she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name John. Then the angel gave a preconception spiritual ultrasound. The angel said to Zechariah, this one born to you, this one that you will name John, that you and I know as John the Baptist, he will be great. You will rejoice because of him. In fact, many will rejoice at his coming. He will go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He will make ready God's people For the long awaited Christ. Now, you read those words in the opening lines of Luke chapter 1, and you got to come to this conclusion. Praise God that God answers prayer. I mean, right? Praise the Lord that He answers prayer. Now, sometimes His answer comes in strange places, at strange times, and in strange ways, but He still answers prayer. There's some of you who just might be one prayer away from a breakthrough. You've been praying for something a mighty long time, haven't you? You've been praying for that family member. You've been praying for your spouse. You've been praying for the salvation of your children or your grandchildren. You've been praying for the retrieval of your prodigal. You've been praying for that crisis at home. You've been praying for that difficulty at work. You've been praying for a long time, haven't you? And you've wondered, like Zachariah and Elizabeth, does God even hear my prayers? Is God even going to respond? For them, the window of opportunity was quickly closing. And in just the right time, God answered prayer. I want you to know that God answers your prayer. God hears you. He may answer you in very strange ways, at very strange times, very strange places, but he does answer. Now you would hope that Zechariah would respond with great joy and excitement but instead he responds with doubt how can i be sure of this he says i'm old my wife is well along in years and gabriel the angel took offense at this he said, I'm Gabriel for crying out loud. I stand in the presence of God Almighty. I've been sent to give you this message, and because you didn't believe me, because you didn't take me at my word, you will not be able to speak until what I've said has come to be. And in that moment, the preacher couldn't speak, the priest was mute. He tried to speak. He tried to have a comeback, but he couldn't say anything. He could not push any air over his vocal cords. He couldn't even let out a squeak. He couldn't make a sound. Now, by this time, the people outside the temple, those that have come to pray... They were getting a little anxious after all they realized that the priest, Zechariah, had been in the temple far too long. They knew exactly how long it was supposed to go. Usually it's pretty quick. The priest goes in. He lights the incense. As the smoke rises up to heaven, it's symbolic that as the smoke rises, so does their prayers. And so the prayers get up to the nostrils of God and better yet the ears of God. And so typically the priest would go in, light the incense, wouldn't be there very long, come back out, offer the final benediction. Because you know religious people. People, once somebody prays too long, everybody gets uncomfortable, feels a little awkward, and by now it's evening time and everybody's hangry, they're hungry, they want to get back home. So they're thinking to themselves, where is the priest? And after a long time, like obnoxiously long, finally, Zechariah comes out. But he can't say anything, he can't offer the final benediction. He's making signs to people. It's obvious that he had seen a vision. Apparently, somebody had to call on somebody else to voice the benediction. And all the people left. And They thought to themselves, that was mighty strange. We ain't never seen that before. I wonder what's going on. Zachariah went home. He couldn't talk. When he went in, he didn't say hello to his wife, Elizabeth. And after a while, she realized that (laughs) old boy was mute. And it must have been a shock to Elizabeth that her husband couldn't talk. I know, maybe it was a pleasant surprise that he couldn't talk. Maybe she thought to herself, it's not that much different than usual because he never talks to me anyway. All I get is a grunt on occasion, but for nine months, he couldn't speak. He couldn't say hello in the morning. He could not say, please pass me the salt at lunch. He couldn't say, what's for dinner? He could not say, you look beautiful today. He could not talk to his friend in the marketplace. He couldn't yell at the moron that just cut him off in the street. He couldn't speak. For nine months, he couldn't speak. The fact that he couldn't speak is astounding enough, but the fact that Elizabeth became pregnant, now that's miraculous. For those nine months, I'm not saying that they never communicated. They probably got pretty good at sign language, don't you think? They probably got pretty good at scratching off some notes on scraps of parchment and handing it one to the other. But for nine months, he couldn't verbalize anything. Zechariah couldn't speak, but I promise you he could think. What was he thinking about? He was thinking about what Gabriel the angel had told him. That this one born to him was going to be a bouncing baby boy. His name was to be John. And he would go in the power and the spirit of Elijah. 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 I mean, that's one of the mighty prophets of old. Elijah, who raised the widow's son at Zarephath. Elijah, who called down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. Elijah, who defeated 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. Elijah, who never tasted death, but was swept up to the heavens in a chariot. Elijah and his son was gonna go in front of the coming of Messiah Just as the prophets had foretold, for they had said that before Messiah comes, that one like Elijah will come to prepare the way for God's people. And Zechariah realized that was his son. As the baby was growing in the womb of Elizabeth, so the faith was growing in the heart of Zechariah. He was convinced he was going to be obedient. One of the ways he could tangibly be obedient was by naming that boy John. He communicated that to Elizabeth. Elizabeth was in agreement with it. She understood the story that was behind it. And so once the baby was born, on its eighth day, the family took the baby and mom and dad. They went to the temple once again for a couple of reasons. One is her circumcision and the other is to name the child. came time to name the boy And Elizabeth was insistent that his name is to be John. The family thought to themselves, John, John, that's a nice name. It's a common name, but but John, nobody in the family is named John. Why don't we do the old man a favor? Why don't we just kind of speak on his behalf? Why don't we just name that boy Zachariah Jr. And we'll just call him Zeke for short. That sounds nice. It sounds appropriate. And after all, he hadn't been able to speak for nine months. The old preacher's been mute for a very long time. But Elizabeth was insistent, so they asked for a, a tablet. They asked for a scrap of paper. They took the parchment over to Zechariah, and they said, What should his name be? And With a pen, he etched out the phrase, His name is John. As soon as he wrote the letters, his lips were loosed. and For the first time in nine months, Zechariah could speak. If that was you, what would you say? You've been muted for nine months, unable to speak, unable to talk, unable to communicate. What would you say? You've got some options here. I mean, you could blast God, you could get angry at the Lord. You could just really give him what for. You could blast somebody in your family. After all, you've been working on it for nine months. I mean, finally you got what you want to say and you got in your mind. You could really give somebody exactly what you want to give them and nail them to the wall. I mean, what would you say? What would you do? For Zechariah? what I read for you are the first words out of his mouth. Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 79 That's the prayer, that's the prophecy, that's the preaching, that's the communication that Zechariah speaks. And what is he talking about? And I want to pick up on that last phrase, the path to peace. I I contend this morning that everything that Zechariah is talking about is a path to peace. I think there are three steps to this path to peace. And I want to take them in reverse order as you find them in the text. First, uh, the path to peace is found and bound in salvation from Him. It's in verse 77. And then peace is found by service to Him. It's in verse 74. And then the third step of the path to peace is shouts for Him. That's in verse 68. I want to take them in reverse order as you see them in the text. That if you're going to have peace with God, once again, I'm not talking about the absence of conflict. I'm talking about the presence of God Almighty in your life. If you're going to have peace, the first step is salvation from him. It's right there in verse 77, isn't it? Zechariah turns to his eight-day-old boy, He's saying, you, my child, you will be great. You'll be a, a great prophet of the Lord. In verse 77, you will give the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. The way you're going to have peace with God, the first step is salvation from him. God's salvation is always Found in the forgiveness of sin. Whether you're in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, God's salvation is predicated on the forgiveness of sin. The Old Testament sacrificial system was established because they understood that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so they orchestrated all these ways and all these uh, types of sacrifices that could be offered to make sure that your sins were forgiven and God's righteous royal wrath would be pushed off just for a little bit longer. Now all of that was foreshadowing. It was a precursor to the coming of Christ, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. It is his blood that covers our sins both now and forevermore. And so the forgiveness of God is necessary for salvation. God has to forgive our sins. Your biggest problem is your sin problem. It's true for you and it's true for all humanity. The greatest problem in our culture is the problem of lostness. It's not a military problem. It's not a political problem. It's not a money problem. It's not a relational problem in the sense of how we relate one to the other. Our biggest problem is a sin problem. And it's only God who paves the way for salvation. And according to the Lord, salvation is accomplished through the forgiveness of sins. What Zechariah is saying to his little infant is that you my son are going to be used by God to convey the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Just stop and think for a moment. What was the summary statement of John the Baptist preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He had one sermon he repeated it over and over again. I guess it was a pretty good one, right? I mean, he had one sermon. He repeated it constantly. He said, repent for the kingdom is near. Everything about John's ministry, about being a precursor to Christ, about being the one coming in the spirit and power of Elijah was to prepare God's people for the coming of God. And the way you do that is through repentance of sin because it's through repentance of sins that you find forgiveness. And it's through forgiveness of sin that you're giving God salvation. And if you're gonna step in peace with God it always begins with salvation from him so the way we are forgiven of sin is through repentance that's what John said he spent his whole ministry preaching that so what does it mean to repent there are a lot of good definitions I was probably raised on the same understanding that you had for you were taught that to repent meant to do a 180 and to turn to turn away from sin and to turn towards the savior I understand that definition. Sometimes I feel it to be a little bit humanistic. So let me give you this understanding of repentance. And it comes from Daryl Bach in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke. That repentance is turning to God alone to deal with our sin. That's repentance. Repentance. Repentance says, God, I can't help myself. God, I can't fix myself. God, I can't remedy my problems. God, I can't do anything to cure this culture. God, I need to repent. What does it mean to repent? It means to turn to God alone to deal with our sin. If you think about the Gospel of Luke Repeatedly in Luke's gospel, there are story upon story of individuals that are repenting of sin. What are they doing? They are turning to God alone to deal with their sin. Let me quickly give you just a few examples. For starters, there's the paralytic. Remember the paralytic? He had about four friends. They brought him to Jesus, couldn't get in the house, so they cut a hole in the roof, plopped him at the feet of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, their faith, not only the four friends, but specifically the faith of the paralytic, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. The religious people listening there thought to themselves, who is this man? He is a blasphemer. Only God can forgive sin. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to him, since you will know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin, he looked at the paralytic and said, son, get up. Take up your mat and walk. Now there's the proof in the pudding, right? I mean, anybody can say your sins are forgiven. But do you really know it or not? But if a paralytic... It's told, get up, take up your mat and walk, and he actually does it. The proof is right there before your very eyes. Jesus connects both because Jesus is the one who heals us physically and, more importantly, he heals us spiritually. Son, your sins are forgiven. So that everybody may know that the Son of Man can forgive sins, take up your mat and walk. And guess what happened? The paralytic felt power pulsating through his legs, ankles, and feet. He jumped to his feet. Just to show off, he bent down, picked up his mat, rolled it up, put it under his arm, and skipped out of the house. What does that story show you? It shows you what repentance looks like, turning to God alone to deal with your sin problem. Let me tell you about uh, Zacchaeus. You know Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down because I've got to stay at your house today. I love the little nursery rhyme, but the story doesn't end there, does it? Zacchaeus came scurrying down the sycamore fig tree as he and Jesus walked back to Zacchaeus' house. Jesus had a gospel conversation with him. Zacchaeus, I know that you're sick and tired of being shoved aside, pushed away, marginalized and misunderstood. Look, I came to deal with your sin problem. Do you trust me? By the time you get to the house, Luke tells us that Zacchaeus looked at Jesus and said, See, I have given half my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said with a smile on his face, salvation has come to this house. Because this man too is a son of Abraham. The son of man came to seek and to save that which is lost salvation came to this house how did it come to this house because Zacchaeus turned to God and God alone to deal with his sin problem let me give you one more quick illustration it's one of the most notorious characters in Luke's gospel it's the thief on the cross Jesus is dangling precariously on a cross made of wood he's hanging between two thieves at first those two thieves are ridiculing Jesus but eventually the one thief looks at his partner in crime and says hey let's let's cut this out we are here getting what we deserve. But the man on the middle cross, he's done nothing wrong. And turning to Jesus, the thief just said, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus turned to the thief and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Friends, that is repentance. The thief on the cross literally, physically, spiritually had to turn to God and God alone, the man on the middle cross. He had to turn to God and say, remember me when you enter your kingdom and Jesus declared today, you'll be with me in paradise. That is repentance. Friends, if you want to have peace with God, it always begins. First step, salvation from him. And that salvation It's through the forgiveness of sins. And that forgiveness of sins is only made possible through repentance. Turning to God alone to deal with your sin. Can I ask you a question? Have you received Jesus as Savior? Have you turned to Christ and Christ alone to deal with your sin? If you haven't, today can be the day when you get salvation from him. And if you get his salvation, I promise you, that's the first step of peace with God. Second, not only is there salvation from him, but there is service to him. I'm in verse 74 now. I just jumped up a couple of verses. Because as Zachariah talking to his son, he's talking about the Lord. And he's saying to his son that you will point people unto the Lord and the Lord will rescue us. And enable us to serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness. If you have salvation from Him, it doesn't stop there. Salvation from Him always leads to service to Him. You can't just sit and soak. You can't just receive salvation and do nothing with it. If you have salvation from him, Christian, then you must have service to him. Because he enables us, he empowers us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. We are called to serve him. We are saved to serve him. We serve him through this congregation. We serve him through this faith family. We serve him in this community from this community of faith. We serve him through the church. So if you're saved, your salvation is from him, and your service is to him, he enables you to serve him without fear. Have you ever stopped to realize that every time the angels appear, the very first words out of their mouth are, fear not, Because everybody's bound in fear. We are not to be fearful. We are to be free. And if the Son has set you free, then you'll be free indeed. We serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. Holiness. The only word that describes God in its triple superlative fashion is the word holy. In Old Testament and New Testament, the angels declare holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The angels say that in Isaiah. The angels say it in Revelation. They're constantly saying, God is holy, holy, holy. That's the only characteristic of God that's described in triple superlative fashion. God is love, but you never read. God is love, love, love. God is forgiving, but you never read. He's forgiving, forgiving, forgiving. He's gracious, but you never read. He is gracious, gracious, gracious. He is holy, and you constantly read. He is holy, holy, holy. If he is holy, we are to be holy. Our service to him is to be holy. And our service unto him is to be righteous. Righteous is not just your identity. It's also your activity. If you are in Christ, you've received his salvation, Your identity is that you are as innocent as the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I get somebody to say amen? You are as innocent as Christ. That if you have received his salvation, you are innocent. That's your identity. But your activity must flow from that. That out of that innocent identity comes righteous activity. So you do the right thing because the right one died to make you right. And because you are right, then you want to glorify the ultimate right one in heaven. Because God is holy and he is righteous. And because of his work on the cross for you, on your behalf, and you've received it in his salvation, then you've been declared holy and you've been declared righteous. So your service unto him must be holy and righteous. I asked you a few moments ago, have you been saved? Let me ask you this other question, Christian. Are you serving him? If you've received salvation from him, you must Have service to him. So what service are you giving unto Christ? And the service that you give to Christ through his church must be marked without fear, holy, righteous. So what holy, fearless, righteous actions, ministry, service are you giving unto him? See, if you're going to walk in peace, the first step, salvation from him. Second step, service to him. Third step, shouts for him. I'm in 68 now. See, I've just gone backwards. I went from verse 77 to verse 74. Now I'm in verse 68. You say, Pastor, I don't see the word shout in verse 68. I saw the word salvation in verse 77. I saw the word serve in verse 74. Verse 74 but I don't see shout in verse 68. Well, let me ask you, friend, what words do you see? Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. I don't know how you describe that. Praise be to the Lord sounds like a shout to me. He's shouting unto God. Now, he started with a bang. But after all, you would too if you have been muted for nine months. If you had not been able to speak for nine months and you love the Lord and you know the Lord loves you, you would start with a shout. You would start with a shout of praise. That's how Zechariah begins. He begins with a bang. Shout to the Lord. Praise the Lord, he says. Zechariah says, I've got a lot to shout about. I've got a lot to praise him about. He says, I praise the Lord because he has come And has redeemed his people. That's right there in verse 68. Praise be to the Lord because he has come and has redeemed his people. Friend, he's describing future event in past tense. Do you see that? What's he describing? When he says, I praise the Lord because the Lord has come. What's he describing? He's describing the arrival of Jesus, which won't take place for a few months from now. And when he says, and I praise the Lord because of the redemption of God's people, what's he talking about? He's talking about Calvary that will take place some 33 years down the road. So he's talking about a future event in past tense. He has come and he has redeemed. You sit there and say, well, pastor, thank you for that English lesson. I'm so glad you gave that to me. I'm, I can read that. I see the ED at the end of it. That he has redeemed, and I know that he has come, his past tense, and so I know that. What's your point? When the prophets spoke, they could speak with such certainty about a future event, they would describe it in past tense as if it already happened. They were so sure it was gonna happen, they were so certain it was gonna come to pass. So here, Zechariah, like a prophet, says over his son and to the Lord, praise be to the Lord, because the Lord has come. He'll come in Jesus in a few months, and the Lord has redeemed. He'll do that through Jesus in about 33 years. And here, Zechariah says, listen, if you want the path to peace, salvation from him, service to him, shouts for him because he is a good God and he's worthy to be praised. Friends, it's one thing to praise God when life is pleasant. It's another thing to praise God when life is full of pain. If all you have is a God who's worthy to be praised when life is pleasant, then you've got a weak God. The God of the Bible is a God who's worthy of praise in pleasure and in pain. Because even in pain, we shout for praise. Even in pain, we can shout unto Him because He is worthy. His name was Horatio Spafford, he was a very successful attorney made a lot of money in real estate. But the Chicago fire of 1871 destroyed much of his fortune. Not long before the fire came, his son had died. And now he and his wife Anna had four remaining daughters. Life had been so tough and painful, tumultuous that Horatio and his wife Anna thought it would be a good idea to vacation, not just to get out of town, but to get out of the country. So they decided to vacation in England. Right at the very last moment, some of you may be able to identify with this, at the very last moment, pressing business came up. Horatio said, I've got to stay. I've got to tend to this. As soon as this business deal is done, I'll be on the next boat, and I'll meet you in England. He kissed his wife, Anna, and his four daughters. Put them on the ship. And somewhere on the voyage, tragedy upon tragedy happened. The boat collided. The collision was so force so forceful that the ship sank to the bottom of the frigid waters of the Atlantic Ocean. On that night, Some 200 people perished. They gathered all those that had survived, took them on to England. One of those survivors was Anna. Anna got to England, sent a two-word telegram back to her husband, Horatio. and The two-word telegram simply said, saved alone. His four daughters were entombed in the frigid waters of the Atlantic. Horatio boarded the very next boat, went to England. As he was making his trip across the pond, the captain, knowing the story, called for Horatio to come out of his stateroom, and he said, Mr. Spafford, we know that this is the place where the previous ship went down. Encased beneath these waters are your four daughters. As you well can imagine, Horatio wept. You would have too. After a few moments, he regained his composure. He went back into his stateroom. And this is what he wrote. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Friends, Horatio Spafford could write those words because he was at peace with God. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of God Almighty. It was only because He had salvation from Him. He had service to Him. He could shout for Him, even in the midst of pain. This morning, I came to tell you, that is what peace looks like. Peace is not a theory. Peace is a person. It all begins with Jesus Christ. Because what Jesus has done for us, we can praise Him when times are good. We can praise Him when times are bad. We can praise Him in moments of pleasure. We can praise Him in moments of pain. This is a God who is worthy of all of our praise. So today, we just shout. We shout for Him. We shout for joy. We shout for glory. We shout because of the peace of God. Because God so loved the world that He gave His one only Son. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We shout because God demonstrated His own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We shout because in the fullness of time, God sent His Son, born of a virgin, born under law to redeem those under law. We shout because we confess with our lips, Jesus, Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. We will be saved. We shout because God is able to do imaginably more. We can never ask, think, or imagine. I'm here to tell you that God is good. He's worthy of our praise. Friends, this is Peace. The path to peace is a three-step. It always begins with salvation from him. Have you received it, the forgiveness of sin, through the repentance of your sin? To say, God, I turn to you and you alone to deal with all of my junk. It begins with salvation from him, but it always leads to service to him. What in the church are you doing for his good and for his glory without fear, in holiness, in righteousness? And if you have salvation from him and you have service to him, you just can't help but shout for him. Y'all didn't hear me. I said, if you have salvation from him and you have service to him, you just can't help but shout for him because he is worthy. I don't care what exactly you're going through in this very moment, whether it's good or bad, high or low, it is a good time for us to praise the Lord because he's worthy of our shouts of praise. Praise be to the Lord. He has come. He has redeemed us. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of God. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to men and women and boys and girls. Upon whom his favor rests. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this moment of invitation. We pray that you will speak and that we will respond in obedience unto you. Help us to be in step with you. Help us to step in peace. Salvation from you. Service to you. Shouts for you. In Jesus' name.